Well, good morning, church. Uh, if we haven't had the pleasure of meeting yet, my name's Ben Clausen. I lead the college ministry here at Creekside. And I am typically here in the nine and then over in our college gathering that exists at 10.30 o'clock. Basically, we just come together with some college students, with some families, talk about God's truth, apply it, have fun. It's a great place to be. Would love to see you there. Um, But I'm excited to be with you guys today because like I uh, just prayed, we're going to encounter this passage that is is going to push on us and is going to challenge us and push us out of our comfort zones. Uh, so it's, it's going to be a good one. Y'all, y'all feeling good about that? Great. I'll, I'll take that as a yes. So if you've got a Bible, um, we're going to be in James chapter 2 today. James chapter 2 today. And as you're turning there, um, I shared this a few weeks ago over uh, Christmas break, but I uh, wanted to tell you guys, if you haven't heard, that my wife Hannah is expecting our first child, and we had uh, the little anatomy scan thing this week, and we found out that we're having a little baby girl, and we are so pumped about that. Oh, thank <laughs> you guys. Stop, stop, stop. And uh, so we are just seriously over the moon with excitement about this little baby girl. You didn't realize you were coming to our gender reveal today, but here, here we all are. Uh, so glad you're here. Um, but this week, so we found this out on Tuesday, and as I've been thinking about this little girl this week, uh, I have felt all of these emotions that I, I just like seriously didn't have a framework for. All of these new emotions have just been coming up in my heart and like taking me over. Like seriously, when I think about this little baby girl, I just like melt. I just melt. I think about her like in kindergarten and I think about her looking like Hannah and I think about her in like high school. Ah, and it's just, it's just so crazy thinking about this little person that's gonna exist. And literally one, one day this week, I was, I was driving to work and I wasn't even thinking about the baby girl. And then all of a sudden the thought popped into my head. If anyone hurts this baby girl, I'll kill him. <laughs> what the? <laughs> I was like, where did, that, where did that come from? But yeah, I will. I will kill him. And I, I just realized there's this, there's this part of me that now thinks about this girl and just this protective nature comes up in me. And I know a lot of you are parents, so I know I'm sort of describing a feeling that is familiar to you. You know, you felt it with your kids, probably especially your girls. When you realize, this is, this is my child. And I, I love them. And my life, to a certain extent, is all about loving and setting this child up to thrive. It's a beautiful thing. And I tell you that just because one of the most consistent images that the Bible uses to describe the relationship between God and us when we put our faith in him is the relationship between a father and his son or daughter. Father and a son or daughter. It's a, it's a beautiful image. And in reality, the amount of love that I have for my baby, that you have for your baby, is a drop in the bucket compared to the ocean of God's love that's just poured out upon us as his kids. And the reason that this is so significant is because James is going to do something really challenging today. He's going he's to challenge this weed that's growing up in the church as he continues on on his mission to see us matured and take steps in obedience and relationship with Christ, he's gonna challenge us to consider our prejudice, our partiality, our favoritism, 
the weed of partiality that springs up in our heart. And James is going to say, listen, partiality, favoritism, prejudice, these things have no place in the church or in our hearts. He's going he's gonna to press. And why is that? Well, it's because each time that we are prejudiced against someone or partial to someone, we're stepping on one of God's kids. We're stepping on one of God's kids. How's it feel when someone is biased against or shows negative favoritism toward, toward your kid or your hypothetical kid, if you imagine that you had one? Doesn't feel good. Doesn't feel good. And today God's going to challenge us to think about this. And it's really important because all of us, if we're honest, have a certain amount of partiality or favoritism or prejudice tucked away in the, in the dark crevices of our hearts. Every single one of us. Every single one of us has this in us. It's different for each of us, the standard that we consider someone more worthy of our time and our affection and our attention. But for some of us, it's, it's literally what our passage will talk about today. It's, it's income levels. I uh, am in this, this income bracket, and I only associate with people in this un- income bracket. If you're over there, I ain't got time for you. Uh, I remember when I was here at A&M, there was a fraternity, whom I will not name, uh, who had this, this standard for the guys that applied for their fraternity. They would literally look at, uh, they would Google search your family's home if you applied for this fraternity and only let you in if your house was big enough. <laughs> they, because they said, this is the fraternity for rich dudes. Um, that's, that's prejudice based on income. For some of us, it's based on political affiliation. If, if you voted for Joe last time around, we, we got nothing to talk about. Or the opposite, you voted for Trump last time around, we, we got nothing to talk about. I remember Hannah and I were on a vacation this past summer in a, a state which I will not name, and uh, we were talking to the store owner, and she asked where we were from, and we said Texas, and she said, well, at least tell me you didn't vote for Trump. I'm like, how's that for a conversation starter? Jeez. And y- you feel the discomfort, and it's because... That's prejudice. That's, impar- that's partiality based on political affiliation. For some of us, it's race. Me and my people and my family, we don't associate or date or marry or spend time with people of this other, this other race because we, well, we're just, we're like this and they're like this, so we don't mix. That's partiality. That's prejudice based on race. I don't know what it is for you, but today James is gonna, James is gonna do the uncomfortable work and cause us to, to search our hearts and see the places that we are practicing partiality or favoritism or prejudice. And he's going to challenge us in the place that the weed of partiality is growing. Would you uproot that and in its place let the beautiful fruit of love thrive? James is going to challenge us today to swap partiality with love. We must swap partiality with love is what James chapter 2 it's going to exhort us. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in James chapter 2, and we're going to see how he explains this. T- told you he was going to push today, huh? Ain't, ain't that fun. Um, I'm, I'm excited because I think this passage is, is going to do a really good job of encouraging and exhorting and challenging us. How good is it to walk away from an encounter with the Word and say, I'm encouraged to be more like Christ in a tangible way, and the passage is going to do that today. So let me just pray for just a minute. God, we just pray for your help. Like I said, this is, this is going to challenge us. It's going to press us. So we pray for humility. We pray that we'd be moldable. Shape us how you want us to be shaped. Amen. James chapter 2, 
Verse one. My, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Must not show favoritism is how this passage starts. James makes his point really clear right from the beginning. Don't show partiality. Don't show partiality. The word that he uses in the Greek actually originally means to receive the face, receiving the face. And the idea that he's getting at with this, this concept of receiving the face is essentially that I, when, so imagine that I'm someone who's judging two people. If I'm judging you two guys and I say, uh, you're worth my attention and my time and you're not, um, I, I give my face to you. You can receive my face, but I won't make eye contact with or look at you, that sort of thing. The people who aren't worth my time don't even get my face. They don't even get the pleasure of seeing my face. Uh, that's basically the concept that he's getting at. He's, he's expressing that there's partiality in choosing who deserves your attention, basically. So that's where we get the word partiality or favoritism, and he's making it really clear. That's got no place in the church or in our hearts, especially as we are following. Notice what he called Jesus here. He called Jesus the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, or your translation might say Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That's a really interesting name used for Jesus. It's not used very often in the scriptures, but here it's used to describe Jesus as glorious. And what it's causing us to think is that Jesus Christ is the one who lived a glorious life on our behalf, who died an ugly death, but rose in glo a glorious resurrection and is seated right alongside God the Father right now in heaven upon his throne. And every single time in the scriptures that someone meets with Jesus, you know what happens? Do they run into his arms and hug? No, people fall on their faces. He's talking about our faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. We are to obey him, to be like him. What are Christians? Little Christs. We're little Christs. We're meant to be just like Jesus, to grow in our likeness to Jesus, to obey Jesus, to do the things that Jesus did, and ultimately to become like Jesus. So here he's saying, be like your glorious Lord Jesus Christ and don't show partiality. Don't show partiality. And in order to explain this concept, he's going to use an illustration. So uh, I'd like to call upon my stagehands to please bring out the, the couple of chairs to help us with the illustration. Thank you. Thank you. Uh-oh. That one's not looking so hot. Thank you, Colton and Jake. In the illustration, he's going to use two chairs. He's going to describe two chairs. We've got two chairs here. Thanks, guys. Uh, one chair is a, a chair that's directly from my office. It's only the finest uh, fabrics and materials imported from all over the world. Just kidding. We bought like 100 of these in bulk. It's a great chair, though. Very comfortable. And then this one is uh, obviously not in great shape. Um, Dusty actually broke this chair this morning, and it now looks like this. So, but honestly, if you've sat in one of these chairs here at Creekside before, uh, you know not not a good chair, not a good chair, not comfortable. If you like your wallets in your pocket, it's like stabbing you the entire time. It's not a good chair. And what he's going to do today is talk about two chairs that exist in the assembly, in the church. So look in verse 2. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring, not an Aggie ring, and fine clothing, and a poor man in filthy clothing also comes in. Rich man walks into your gathering. Poor man walks into your gathering. If you show special attention to the man wearing the fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you. Come on, I got just the one. It's my own chair, actually. It's a really nice chair. It's comfy. You're going to be comfortable this entire time. I guarantee it. But you say to the poor man, you stand over here. 
or sit on the floor by my feet, or here you go, sit in this chair. It's terrible. If you do that, what's the result? Verse four, you have, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Judges with evil thoughts. He's saying that when that moment happens and you judge between two people and you give one the good seat, the good seat in your heart, and one the bad seat, you're an evil judge. <laughs> How challenging is that? You're making yourself like an evil-minded judge, a judge. And that's, that's against, it's juxtaposed to the way of Jesus who treated all with equality, with impartiality. Let me add a little color to the cultural picture of what was going on in the first century in Judaism and Christianity in the time that this was written. So the church at this point was largely poor. It was mostly of the lower class, people of the lower class that were flocking to the church. They loved the message about liberation for the poor and the oppressed and how Jesus was one who cared for people like that. So they were flocking to the church. So it was rare that a rich man would walk into your assembly. So today we see a rich man is actually walking into their church and people that might be there might actually start to think in their minds about what that person could do for them, right? Oh, you might actually have a, a bigger house for a house church to meet in. You might have money to contribute to our cause. Uh, you might be able to put in a good word with the government officials who are trying to persecute us. You might be able to help me get some land because the biggest gap in the wealth disparity involved a lack of land for the impoverished at this time. You might be able to help me out. All of the things that this person could do for them might start flooding into their head and therefore, they say, here's the good seat. I got the best seat in the house for you. But what's happening as a result? You're sliding the poor. You're leaving them to sit in the bad seat. And what all of this does is it causes us to ask the question, who am I giving the good seat? Who am I giving the good seat? Who might step into my life and my heart in this hypothetical scenario and I would judge worth the good seat versus worth the bad seat? Who am I partial against or who am I prejudiced toward is what it's going to make us ask. And for a lot of us, it might make us consider, why is this really a big deal? Why is this really a big deal? And James is actually going to explain in four quick points why partiality is so bad. So we're going to see in the rest of these verses four reasons that partiality is so bad. Man, isn't this, isn't this passage kind of like a hammer? Uh, it's 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 a good hammer, though. We're, I'm going to talk about some bad stuff and then some good stuff. Don't worry. Good stuff is, is coming on the horizon. But as for the bad, he explains that partiality is bad first because it's inconsistent. Partiality is inconsistent. Look at verses 5 and 6. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. You have dishonored the poor. He's saying the partiality is so bad because it's inconsistent with who God is and the way God treats us. It's inconsistent with who God is and the way God treats us. A short sampling of biblical passages shows us all kinds of reasons in the Bible, that the, or all sorts of moments in the Bible that God is described as, in fact, impartial, impartial. And as early as the law given in Deuteronomy says this, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. 
He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. He's impartial and he cares for the poor. And then Job says this, will you condemn him, it's talking about God, who is righteous and mighty, who says to a king, worthless one, and to nobles, wicked man, who shows no partiality to princes nor regards the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. And then in describing how God will judge us one day in Romans, Paul says this, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. No partiality. And then I love the story of Peter. If you've heard the story of Peter, he was a Jew's Jew. He grew up in a Jewish household. He started following Christ, but his faith still had so many Jewish elements entwined with it. And Peter had to learn as he was following Jesus. Jesus isn't just for the Jew. Jesus is for the Gentile. Gentiles are those who aren't Jewish. Jesus loves them. His gospel message, his faith is for them as well. And Peter was literally so stubborn about this. He was what you might describe as, as racist or prejudiced towards the Gentiles. That God had to give him a vision three times because he was so stubborn. You remember that vision that, that Peter gets in Acts chapter 10 where the sheet descends and there's all these animals that were unclean for Jews to eat. And God's like, dinner is served. And Peter's like, no, I can't eat that. I can't eat bacon. Jews don't eat bacon. And God's like, no, I've, I've made that clean. And you're calling what I've made clean, unclean. Peter had to realize this, and as he was wrestling with this, with this vision that God had given him, he walks into this man Cornelius' house, and Cornelius was a Gentile, and he says this beautiful line, for Peter opened his mouth and said, and you have to just realize there's like a, or think that there's a look of marveling on his face, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. The Bible tells us that God himself is impartial. And in fact, this passage tells us that he's not partial to the rich at all. In fact, he loves the poor. Let me read verse five again. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom that he promised to those who love him? God's chosen the poor. That man that walked in in the, in the rags and dirty clothes that you made sit on the throne or sit, sorry, sit on the floor, he might be a spiritual millionaire. He might be a co-heir, a crowned prince, ready to rule and reign with Christ forever and ever, and you gave him the bad seat in your heart, in your life. God chooses the poor, the neglected, the oppressed. Luke chapter six says, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And it's really actually good news if you think about it that, uh, that God is is consistently impartial to us because if he was only partial to those who were righteous, those who were good, people who were good, who were obedient to God, then none of us would have faith in him, right? None of us would be in relationship with him right now. Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6 explains how or why that is so bad when it says, for the wages of sin is death. Sin shows no partiality. It gets all of us. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but praise God for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if we believe in our hearts, profess with our mouth that Christ died and rose again, we can have salvation. God is impartially offering grace to all of us, to every single one of us. 
Thank the Lord, literally, that he offers us his grace impartially, that he doesn't just choose those who are good enough, those who look a certain way, to be a part of his church. And therefore, it is inconsistent. It is inconsistent for us to practice partiality. That's the first reason. The second reason partiality is so bad is because partiality is just simply illogical. Partiality is illogical. Let me read the next verses, six and seven. But you have dishonored the poor. Is not the rich the one who is exploiting you? Are not they the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the holy name of him to whom you belong? A little more color to the cultural picture. Douglas Moo says this, a small group of wealthy landowners and merchants accumulated more and more power with large numbers of people, while large numbers of people were forced from their land and grew even poorer. This was happening at a time that the wealth gap was growing larger and larger and larger, and the rich were exploiting the poor, kicking them off of their land, and they were dragging them into court to get favorable verdicts against them, making the state of the poor even worse, and they were blaspheming the name of Jesus. They were speaking against the name of Jesus, and yet they're the ones, this passage says, whose favor you're attempting to curry. Why? It's illogical. It's illogical to treat so well those that are treating you so, so terribly. Why are you doing that, he's saying? Why are you doing that? It's, uh, it's, there's a reason that this is like a whole movie trope, right? Think about, think about this. There's so many movies where they play on the idea of someone who's trying to gain the favor or I of someone who's like really, really bad, someone really bad. I tried really hard to think of, of like Disney movies and stuff, but I came up with none. So I've got Mean Girls. Uh, in Mean Girls, you think about the main character. She's always trying to get Regina George's attention, right? Who's Regina George? The worst person of all time. She's terrible. She's terrible. And she's always trying to get her favor, her attention. You can think about Dwight and Michael in the office. Dwight is always trying to get on Michael's good side, always kissing up to him. And what's Michael do? He shows him no respect. He doesn't respect Dwight at all. Or you can think about, uh, uh, what, what is it? Anne Hathaway. Anne Hathaway, there we go. And Meryl Streep. You know the movie I'm talking about? Anne Hathaway always trying to get Meryl Streep's attention and affection, even though the movie is literally named after Meryl Streep. The devil wears Prada. It's, a, it's terrible. And it's for a reason that it's a whole movie trope because we all know the feeling of ourselves or someone we know trying to gain the favor or attention of someone who doesn't deserve it. He's saying it's illogical to show such favor, such favoritism toward the rich. Why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? He's really challenging us in this moment. That's the second reason partiality is bad. And the third is because it's immoral. Partiality is immoral. Look how the verses go on. In verse 8, if you really keep the royal law, the royal law found in Scripture, love your, neighbors as, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you're convicted by the law as lawbreakers. See what he's saying? He's saying it's immoral because you're violating God's royal law, his royal law. Why does he call it a royal law? because it's the law and standard of conduct of the king, the King Jesus, right? The Bible, the New Testament, teaches us a little bit about um, this thing known as the kingdom of God. And it refers to the kingdom of God as a thing that's already and not yet. Basically, that means that the kingdom of God already exists here on this earth. We get to participate and pray, as the Lord's Prayer taught us. Uh, 
your kingdom come, your will be done. We pray for God's kingdom to come. And then in another day, as we studied in Revelation last semester, there will be a day that the kingdom of God is in full reign upon the earth. The King Jesus will literally rule the earth. We await that day, but we live in the already and not yet. But when Jesus is asked, as king, what's your standard of conduct? What is the most important thing that your followers can do as they live under the rule of King Jesus? He says this in Matthew chapter 22, you shall love your, the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the royal law of God's kingdom. Love God, love your neighbor. And it is a violation of that law to show prejudice, or favoritism, or partiality. He's saying it's literally immoral that you show this kind of partiality to people. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. And that's the reason why it's such good news at the same time that God shows grace, that he offers grace to us all. It's brilliant news. And then finally, the fourth reason that partiality is bad is because it's inconsiderate. It's inconsiderate. Look at the last verses. Oh my gosh, I totally skipped a few verses. Uh, has this ever happened to you? <laughs> anyway, uh, verse 10. <laughs> but if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted of the whole law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, you shall not commit, a mur you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not commit murder. If you don't commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. So uh, we're backing up now. He's still getting at the point that disobeying the law is immoral. And he's speaking to the concern of the Jews to whom he is writing, who would care much about God's law. He's saying, listen, you might look at partiality and say, it's not that big of a deal. It doesn't matter too much. But in reality, if you break one part of the law, you've broken the whole of the law. You know how it says don't commit adultery? And don't commit murder? Well, if you commit adultery, haven't you broken the entire law? Yes, you've committed one felony against the law. You've broken the law once. You've decided to show partiality once and you are a transgressor of the entire law. The entire law, it is immoral to disobey God's law. And then finally, in these last verses, verses 12 and 13, so speak and act. Those are two really good words, speak and act both your words and your actions. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The last reason that partiality is bad is because it's inconsiderate of the coming judgment. Of the coming judgment. What do we know about judgment in the end times in scripture? Well, we know that there are two judgments. There's the great white throne judgment and the judgment seat of Christ. Great white throne judgment is where you'll be judged heaven or hell. And if you're a believer, you actually get to skip that one straight to heaven, straight to heaven. But then at the judgment seat of Christ, that's where you hear sort of the, you'll be rewarded for what you've done on this life and the, in the body. It's what Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says, we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in body, whether good or evil. And what this passage tells us is that what we'll need in that moment, 
more than anything else, is mercy. Though God's wrath is not at stake, though heaven and hell is not a question being asked at that point, we still might miss out on reward because of the way that we showed partiality and favoritism and prejudice. And we need in that moment mercy. And what he says here is that did you show mercy on earth? No. Were you a merciless judge? Then a merciless judgment is awaiting you. Or were you merciful on this earth, kind, caring, forgiving? Then more mercy than your heart could fathom is awaiting you at the throne of grace and love. What we need is mercy. It says mercy triumphs over judgment. It's a beautiful line. It's more poetry than it is prose. But what it's saying is essentially that mercy is always better than judgment. We must fall off to the side of mercy where God always falls. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In that way, we're living in light of, we're living in consideration of the coming judgment. But if we show partiality, we're living in an inconsiderate way. We're not considering the last judgment. We're not living in light of the end. Uh, It's kind of like football. No, it's not, but it's kind of like football. Um, It's Super Bowl Sunday, so I figured I probably needed to use a football illustration. Here we are. I found out today that, or yesterday, that both quarterbacks are from Texas, so I'm rooting for both teams, and should be a fun fun matchup. Uh, But it's sort of like football. Every good football team is playing in light of how much time is left on the clock, right? Uh, If you're down a score on the opposite end of the field, you have no timeouts and there's like a minute left, do you run the ball up the middle? No, you throw it as far as you can. You try and score a touchdown. You You go fast. Because you're living in light of the clock. Or the opposite, if you're, if you're up, if you've got a pretty big lead and the other team is trying to mount a comeback, you just run that ball. That's all you do. Eat up as much clock as you possibly can. You're living in light of how much time is left on the clock. You're living in light of the end. And in the same way, we should consider the way that we live today based on how we will be judged tomorrow, right? By the Lord by the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ, we should live in light of the end, knowing that there's only so much time left on the clock for each of us. There's only so much more time. The reason that partiality is so dangerous is because it's inconsistent, it's illogical, it's immoral, and it's inconsiderate. And we must, therefore, as he exhorts us, swap partiality with love. Swap partiality with love. Well, why? Well, because love, unlike partiality, is entirely consistent. It's completely consistent with the character of God, with who he is, and with how he treats us. It's consistent. Partiality, unlike love, is completely logical. It's completely logical. It makes so much sense to treat one another with the kind of dignity that we have as innate beings who are created in Christ's image. To treat one another impartially is completely logical. It's completely logical because we're treating one another as who we really are, image bearers of Christ. Love, unlike partiality, is exceedingly moral. What does Christ want us to be? Just another one of the uh, copy, copy and paste, someone who's of the world? No, he wants us to be a light upon a, upon a 
the stand that we don't cover with a basket. He wants us to be a city upon a hill. He wants us to be salt and light in the world. And the way that we do that is we love our neighbors as ourselves and we don't show partiality. We don't show preference. And in that way, we stand out from the rest of the world. And in that way, it's so moral to live in light of God's law. And then finally, love unlike partiality is highly considerate because we think, I know, I know where this is going. I know where the story ends. I know I'm gonna meet Jesus face to face one day. And when I meet him, I want mercy to triumph over judgment. Mercy to triumph over judgment. We must swap partiality with love. So how do we do it? Just a couple of quick ideas to encourage you toward. The first is check yourself. In the, in the words of the infamous Ice Cube, uh, check yourself before you wreck yourself. I'm so sorry that I just quoted Ice Cube in a sermon. <laughs> but I did, so, (laughs) but honestly, if you think about it, it's like actually pretty good wisdom. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. And that's, I think, what this passage is causing us to do. It's causing us to think, what prejudice do I have lodged in my heart? How do I check myself for partiality, for errant motives? How can we begin to ask, who am I giving the good seat? Who in my heart am I trusting with the good seat and who's getting slighted? Who do I look at and think that they're worthy of the bad seat? So how do you check yourself for partiality? This week, I just encourage you to to ask God, God, would you just show me if there's a blind spot in my heart, in my life, where I'm failing to show your love to a certain specific person or a certain type of person or a certain group of people? And Lord, would you do what only you can do and uproot that sin that exists in my heart? Check yourself for partiality, for errant motives, and ask, who am I giving the good seat? Who am I giving the bad seat? And then next, imitate Christ. Imitate Christ. We Christians, like we said earlier, are little Christs, those who are meant to be like Jesus, do what Jesus did, and become like Jesus here on earth. So how this week can we love and follow Jesus, obey his royal law by loving our neighbors as ourselves, How can we begin to say, I choose to love the person that I don't feel like loving as my neighbor because I know that that's what Christ would have done. How can I imitate Christ? We love here in town partnering with specific people who are doing this specifically to aid and help the poor and the vulnerable and the oppressed. So if you go on Grace's website right now or all the time, at grace-bible.org and choose local outreach, you can get to our community partnerships and see all these amazing community partners that we have. Aggie Lane Pregnancy Outreach, BCS Together, Brazos Church Pantry, The Bridge, Hope Pregnancy Center, Save Our Streets, and so many more. And all of these would love to help you, to have you step in and help them to love our neighbors in this town as ourselves. So how this week can you swap partiality with love? Swap partiality with love. I want to close by just reading this beautiful passage from Jesus in Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus is describing the the last times, the last days, when judgment begins to come. And Jesus, there we are, standing before his throne, and this is how Jesus evaluates us. This is how Jesus thinks about us and how he encourages us. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. 
For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer Jesus, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in or need clothings and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? Jesus, I didn't see you in that moment. I just saw someone else. And what's Jesus say? Then, then the king replied, truly I tell you, whatever you did from the one, for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. You did for me. What if waiting on the other side of our repentance from our partiality, from our favoritism, from our prejudice, is Jesus waiting to, to say to us, you thought you did it for them in that moment? You did that for me. You did that for me. That person that you were once partial toward, you were prejudiced against, when you repented of that, that was an act of love for me. Well done, good and faithful servant. What if Jesus is waiting for us to swap partiality with love and be a shining image of himself on the earth. Lord, we pray for your help. Because especially with a convicting passage like this, we, we know that it's just one of those things that we cannot accomplish on our own. We know that left to our own devices that we're sinful and prejudiced and hateful and spiteful and show so much preference and favoritism. But Spirit, Holy Spirit, you are the antithesis of all of those things that I just named. And Lord, we love that you live within us now. So we just pray, less of us, more of you, Jesus. Less of us, more of you. Lord, would you transform us would you form us into your image and forge in us Christ? That we might repent of our partiality, of our favoritism, of our prejudice, and walk in the light of your glorious grace, Lord Jesus. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this passage. Help us to live in your light. Help us to center our lives on your name, Jesus. Center our lives on you leaving all else behind. Pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.